Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Barbican Screen Talks Archive podcast. Every episode, we bring you fascinating conversations from nearly 40 years of Q&As, handpicked from our vast archives. This time, we turn to a comparatively recent release, as director Armando Iannucci and producer Kevin Loder discuss their 2020 film, The Personal History of David Copfield. While not exactly a double act, Loder and Iannucci have collaborated as director and producer on three films to date. First was 2009's In The Loop, a big screen outing for Iannucci's era-defining political satire, The Pick of It. Next came dark historical farce, The Death of Stalin in 2017. And most recently, they brought us this superb adaptation of every wise person's favourite Dickens novel, David Copperfield, starring Dev Patel. Prior to joining forces, each man had an impressive career in his own niche. Loder is a stalwart of the British film and TV industry, who's helped make such memorable films as Andrea Arnold's Wuthering Heights and The History Boys. Meanwhile, Iannucci is widely regarded as the godfather of contemporary British TV comedy, having a hand in the careers of such luminaries as director Ben Wheatley, succession creator Jesse Armstrong, and his old The Day-to-Day collaborator, Chris Morris. In this conversation, led by film critic Catherine Bray, you'll hear about making an optimistic British film in a post-Brexit Britain, and about why Iannucci considers young Copperfield to be suffering from a very modern kind of status anxiety. Individual cast members come up, including living legend Tilda Swinton as Betsy Trotwood, and Morfid Clark, who plays a dual role in the film, but is now perhaps better known for the cult horror Saint Maud. And some plot points are discussed in detail, so I should add a spoiler warning here for anyone who hasn't read Dickens' novel, although you have had over 170 years to catch up. There's also an extra special treat in the form of Iannucci providing his very own telephone hold music. Lots to enjoy then. I'm Ellen E. Jones, and this is Barbican Screen Talks with Armando Iannucci and Kevin Loder. Thank you. Who's the whistler? That was a really good whistle. Uh, thank you very much. I can't whistle, yeah, so 
Thank you. Yeah. So we're very lucky uh, Armando's come straight from an edit. Yes. Um, so a real gear change. Uh, I wanted to start by asking, you've said directing is an astonishing ego trip uh, in the past. Still true on this? Oh, yeah. I mean, you can turn into a dictator. Suddenly, it's like suddenly you're telling everyone what to do and they follow your instructions. And it's very easy. I'm not saying I have slipped into this, but I can see how you might if you were doing it non-stop all the time. I can see how you can go completely mad. And my wife teases me after I've finished directing. There's about a week and a half when I stay in directing mode at home. So I'm going, shall we go for a walk? Okay, you two, if you just uh, get the dog and um, we're going to start over there and then we're going to walk through that, you know, and you just... It takes you a while to kind of wind down and, and, and just realise that that's actually... And then you have to start cooking your own food. That's right, <laughs> yes, yes. Instead of food of all the nations being brought to you and going, I don't want this. There's too many bubbles in the water. I don't like it. Take it away. You know, all that kind of... It's very, very easy to fall into that and um, it's good to not be like that. And, uh, Kevin, obviously <laughs> most uh, writer-directors, or the lion's share of them, are simply writer-directors. With Armando, you've got somebody who's also a producer and executive. He's on TV, radio. He's sort of almost an, an empire Yeah, there's right. not much he doesn't know about how the business works. So, and does that make it easier or more difficult? It makes it... Keeps me on my toes, as they say. <laughs> we've not had this discussion before. This is kind no, of... No, we've never had this discussion. weird, talking about um, each other. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, uh, we've done three movies together now and, and now a big TV series, which is... On Wednesdays, um, and True it's always user. a pleasure. I mean, the, um, he's not at all a dictator as a director. He is incredibly collaborative, but you know, one of the things is that the exploration of the material does develop during rehearsal. It develops throughout the shoot, and some crews are not quite used to that. So they take an early conversation with the director and then go running off in a direction that then changes two weeks later. So that's what you have to kind of guard against really and uh, coming on to the film I feel like with a big adaptation that's been done a few times before almost the first thing that people sort of latch on to is the cast who's playing Uriah Heep who's playing David Copperfield who's playing Mr McCorber I mean did you have some of those roles in mind from the get-go or was it all a case of sort of finding it as that process well I knew when we finished doing The Death of Stalin, I knew I wanted to do David Copperfield as the next one, and I asked, actually, Peter Capaldi straight off, when I come to do it, can you be Mr. McCorber? He said, definitely. So that was banked. You're safe. You yeah. can take that home with you. You've got that. But then when it actually came to, OK, we're going to make this, the only person I could think of to play David was Dev, was Dev Patel. I'd never met him, but just watching him and watching him grow from a kind of gawky, kind of awkward teenager in skins to this very charismatic, strong, still force in Lion, I just knew he was, he was David. So I, you know, we got in touch and we met up and I, I said, you want to, I want you to be David Copperfield. And it was a kind of, okay. And he said, yes, I'd sent him the script and he was aware of other stuff I'd done. So he was very much up for it. And I'm grateful that he'd said, because oh, I didn't have an alternative in yeah. mind, perhaps Robert De Niro, de-aged and, <laughs> you know, or, or just everyone in cat fur and just... Um, <laughs> doing that, just scaring everyone, um, with Jip just being played by Judy Dench's hand, just, 
kind of... Uh, we, took, we took the CGI tails off everyone. That's we? right, the yes, they arrived. The, we docked our actors. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, genuinely, that was it. There was no... We didn't have a kind of we we backup plan, really. And then once you've made that decision, I then thought, you know, there was a brief discussion, so therefore, what are we saying? Are we saying, sort of, David's father? Was he Indian? We never meet David's father because he's dead by the time the film's... And I just thought, no, I chose Dev because I thought he was the best person for the part. And that's how I'm going to choose every other member of the cast. I'm going to go for the person who I think best embodies the spirit of that character. It was interesting because when I remember explaining it to a few colleagues then, that, you know, for example, Mrs. Steerforth would be played by an actor of different skin colour than Steerforth. And few people just looked at me like, well, that's never going to work. I mean, how's that ever going to work? And then our experience has been, well, you can tell us, but when people see the film, actually, it just works. It's what theatre's been doing now for a long time. I'd completely agree. And wanted to sort of reference that Oscar Wilde quote, you had have to have her heart of stone to read the death of little Nell without laughing. It's obviously a different, <laughs> different boat. book. But I think it does get at the heart of something that sort of people do Oscar say... Oscar Wilde, where is he now? <laughs> <laughs> Didn't follow up on his early promise. Uh, <laughs> yes. he, he touches on something that yeah. people say about Dickens, that sort of like yes. the, the comedy really lands, but mm. maybe the tragedy, I mean, not so much. It feels like you've learned into that a little bit with this. Well, also, you know, I've been a huge fan of Dickens since about the age of 12 because I've always found his writing funny and very modern. But we do have this image, I think, of Dickens as being a long-winded Victorian melodrama, sentimentality, mud, fog, darkness augurs and all that yes and there is an element of that but also there is this amazing vitality and originality and just the sheer one-liners that he comes up with that we tried to use as many in, in the film as possible when you know when he describes Uriah Heep as being so near to you he's closer to you than your own shirt I mean that's a that's a gag you know that's again that's a, that's from a comedy really and um and also the themes that he touches on I think are so modern, not just the social ones like the homelessness on, and the effect of debt on the personality and the burden of debt, but also mental illness. The first proper depiction in, in English literature of mental illness described properly in Mr. Dick and treating it with kind of an honesty that it merits. And the whole very modern thing of identity and who am I? David has basically what we would today call status anxiety and imposter syndrome, this... Am I fitting in? What do people make of me? You know, if I meet some new people, are they talking about me? If I mention anything from my past, will it harm me? You know, will I be embarrassed? That feels to me a very modern psychology there. And it, so that and the humour always struck me as something that actually hasn't carried over so much in many adaptations because everyone wants to concentrate on, this, on the plot and the plot actually is something that Dickens was making up as he, as he went along, because he was writing these things on a monthly basis and weekly basis. He didn't quite know where it was going sometimes in the earlier books anyway. So for me, it was less about doing a translation of the greatest hits of the book into film and more trying to recapture the amazing originality that's in the writing and, and try and transfer that onto the screen. You know, seeing David drunk for the first time which is all in the book, or him being so besotted with Dora that he sees her name everywhere and her wig, her curls everywhere, which is in the book. You know, it's that, that modernity that I wanted to capture. Yes, and you've got one of the most probably sympathetic Uriah Heaps, I think, I've ever seen. I mean, not that he's not a villain, but it's like sort of 
partridge or somebody in the thick of it. They're awful, but at the same time, you well, can see I've the humanity. Well, I've always felt sorry because the basis of Uriah, we talked about this in the early stages of the rehearsals. David and Uriah roughly had the same start in life and have just decided to go slightly different ways. You know, David's decided to be honest and friendly and Uriah's decided to be slightly bitter and take that bitterness out on those who he feels have got more than him. But I kind of feel there is a sort of cruelty to Uriah from David and his friends. And I thought it was important to show that as well. You know, Dickens very honest in his description of David. You know, David is a frail hero in that he makes friends with the wrong people. He, he sort of gets besotted with someone who you know it's not going to work, but he's not really listening to the advice of those around him. He's, you know, it takes him a while to work out how to sort of be himself and stand up for himself more. And I find I kind of like that honesty. And therefore, it, I think it's important to show that kind of ambiguity in the relationships. I'm going to open it out to the sure. audience. Uh, questions? I'm going to hum while the um, mic <laughs> Should we makes do some its way <laughs> to... Oscar walk-on music. Yes. <laughs> Hi. Hi. When the film started, I was struck by the fact that it started in a similar way to the death of Stalin with a performance. And then, as someone didn't know the story of David Copperfield, I was interested that the story itself contains so much about writing and I was wondering if that was something that drew you to the story and in general as a creative person. Well, as I mean, it's, it sort of feels personal to me, the story, for all sorts of reasons, not least of which is the fact that it's about a writer kind of working out. You know, I grew up also with a sense of, do I fit in? And Dev and I discussed this as, you know, as children of immigrant families, you do grow up with a sense of, are we in, are we out, are we us, are we them, are we... British are we? What, what are we? All those questions. So as a sort of Italian in Scotland and then going to university, a Scot in England and then, you know, latterly a, a Brit in America, you know, you're always sort of slightly not quite knowing. So there was an element of that. And also David Copperfield is such an autobiographical novel that actually there's an element of Dickens and David. And Dickens used to go out and do what you see David doing at the start of the film, which is go on stage and narrate his stories and he became very you know he, he was a huge commercial success doing that going around the world doing that he was the world's first celebrity the rolling stones of his he was the rolling stones of it he was the lou reed of his time um <laughs> and you know he was very much into kind of telling his stories so we knew we wanted to frame it with that sense of and also going back to what i was saying earlier trying to make it from being episodic turn it into something, a film with a beginning and a middle and an end. I, I felt for me the theme of the film was about David turning his memories and his half-forgotten memories and experiences not into writing but reimagining them and maybe elaborating them at times. And his way of identifying himself was to identify himself as a writer. So it was only when he realised he could write this down and make sense of it all that he actually worked out who he was. And we, we had this amazing theatre that we went to in... Um, oh, yes, yeah, in Berry St Edmunds, yeah. Theatre Royal in Berry St Edmunds, which is from that... Well, it's a bit early in that period, but it's one of the last two, I think, uh, yes. proper Georgian theatres around. It was about 1830 or something. Yeah, it's yeah. absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. Hi. Firstly, thank you for making such a beautifully optimistic film. I needed that. <laughs> thank you. I'm just wondering, did you need that? And really, how much did you feel the weight of Dickens, maybe for yourself or amongst your peers when you're tackling this? How much does that play into the film production? I didn't feel the weight of Dickens because I, I felt... I kind of worked out what I wanted to do with it. And part of the decision you have to make early on is 
you mustn't be so reverential towards it that you can't change a thing because you've got to make it work. And therefore, you know, there were characters in the book that had to go just because there's no room. You know, people always mention Barkus, Barkus is willing. That's not there. Certain things were moved around. So, so I knew if I kind of was too frightened to change anything, we'd get nowhere. In terms of the optimism, yes, I sort of feel that the language about this country over the last three years has been so... The default is that we're now an isolationist nation, that we're inward-looking, that we're putting barriers up and so on. And I don't think that's the case. I think Britain is a kind and generous and open and big-hearted country that has a sense of humour about itself. It's very playful and has an amazing creative industry within it and creative talent. And that hasn't changed. And I think that has got drowned out in the other discussion that's going on. So I wanted to make something that I felt celebrated how I see this country, really. And that's why it was important. Yes, we set it in 1840, but I wanted everything about it, how we shot it, how we made it to feel that it was happening now in front of us, that it didn't feel like it was in the past, that actually it's a, actually a reflection of now. That was the underlying kind of intent behind it, apart from, you know, I wanted to be funny. And, you know, if people leave it thinking, oh, I must dig out some Charles Dickens, that, that's fine. If people leave it thinking I must just read more, that's fine. But fundamentally... That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to make something. You know, the last film was The Death of Stalin, which was so bleak and kind of, <laughs> you know, this is not a companion piece to The Death of Stalin. <laughs> and I wanted to make something that, we hadn't planned it, but this is a PG. It's like for all ages. And I kind of like that. I kind of like, we've seen families come to it, then go home discussing it, really, among themselves, really. So uh, that's really what it's yeah, I about. mean, we always designed it that people could bring their children didn't they and um and then we had a little bit of a battle with the censor at one point who uh mistook the fight with the butcher's boy as a kind of gory episode and, and yes. didn't hadn't quite appreciated that a lot of the blood in the scene was joke you know pig's blood effectively yes. and uh, they did actually get up and shake hands afterwards etc etc so we sort of went back on appeal and got our what's PG, the description does it say like mild terror or something <laughs> <you know? laughs> mild terror <laughs> a pig's head <laughs> Hi there. <laughs> um, my question was to do with the dual casting of Dora and his mother. You could say something Oedipal about it, but from the horse's mouth. <laughs> Some people don't even notice it, so congratulations on that. Yes. <laughs> Did people notice it was the same actress? Oh, yeah. There's something in the writing in the book that David, as the narrator of the book, describes Dora in a very kind of mother-substitute kind of way. And I suppose he loses his actual mother fairly early on, or his memories of his mother are kind of clouded in so much other kind of misfortune that um, it seemed, if anyone... I mean, we did think at one point of quite a few of the actors playing different parts, I remember. Yeah, well, I think that was when we were in the kind of, well, theatre's been doing this kind yes. of casting for years, so yes. what's the other thing that theatre does? <laughs> oh, yes, they double up. They double up. <laughs> then we thought, mm, And then I mean, it, got, and it also got tricky because, you know, it involved having everyone just time-wise. It was an irony. But I did like the idea of Morford playing an English-accented Clara and a Welsh-accented Dora, just to make that strange thing that is going on in the book about what David sees in Dora. He sees a sort of reflection, in, not in a kind of creepy way, but just in the person who loves him. 
kind of way. So that's there. But it's, you know, if you don't notice it, it doesn't, it shouldn't affect your take from the film, really. Kudos too on making her so funny because she's well, annoying in the book. She is. <laughs> so the other thing, you know, there are certain, you know, especially Dickens' writing of women, they're either grotesque or they're very dull. And we wanted Agnes to be sharp and kind of David's equal. And we wanted Dora to be, you know, a bit eccentric, but not stupid, more just a different worldview. And in fact, in the end, the agent of her own outcome, really, in that she's the one that recognises that it's not working and that she should leave. Whereas in the book, David actually marries her, and it's clearly a ghastly mistake. But at that time, you can't have them divorcing because that's scandalous. So she just dies just for no reason she just over a chapter she just withers away and dies as does jip on the same day and you just and <laughs> more sympathy for the dead dog <laughs> <laughs> um i just thought that's i'm not having that <laughs> i don't care who he is that's written this i'm not having that so so we 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 changed that we should have had a spoiler warning for the novel of David Copperfield for anyone who hasn't read the oh. book. <laughs> for the A.N. Wilsons of this world. Who, uh -huh. yeah. I think you already partially answered my question in what you were just talking about with David's love interest in Clara. I was Dora. Very, Dora, sorry. Dora, sorry, not Clara. <laughs> Clara's his mum. Freudian slip. Yeah, I was very aware of the fact that the winning love story is between two characters of colour, which I'd like to thank you for, because right. that was incredibly refreshing. <laughs> I wanted to sort of ask about like how, how intentionally subversive were you of the sort of traditional um, way that Hollywood likes to depict Victorian... <sighs> romances because yeah. I saw I think the shipwreck scene is mm. very Byronic it reminds mm. me of the story of Percy Bysshe Shelley mm. and Byron on the beach mm. and also I see a lot of really stereotypical tropes of the like the romantic the romantic lead in so many movies mm. and that's, mm. that's why I personally chose to not go and watch Little Women for example because like the curly dark curly head um, Timothy Chalamet almost looks exactly like your very Byronic right I was just grateful to sort of see People well, of colour sort of coming to the forefront. Well, of these that, I mean, there was no specific list of characters that we were going to select in certain ways. It was just a case of each character. I just wanted to find the right person, but I just wanted to choose from 100% of the acting talent available to me and not feel that I couldn't. With the actual characters in the writing, and we have then discussions with the actor who's playing, and we have discussions and then rehearsals well before we start shooting about those characters. We all wanted to give them life and not feel that they were just a composite of people's memory of what those characters should be. For example, I mentioned Mr. Dick. You know, it's so easy in adaptations to make him a kind of mad, crazy eccentric who's just a figure of fun and a bit of a kind of grinning fool, you know, and he's so not. He's, he carries a sad illness with him and he's such a warm, gentle man as well that we wanted to make sure, and Hugh Laurie does this amazing performance of Mr. Micawber, for example, I think we regard as a kind of roly-poly, jovial figure from adaptations, but he's constantly in debt. And Dickens describes when there's a knock on the door and it's the bailiff's calling, he falls into deep depression and he makes these kind of throat-cutting signs to his wife saying, you know, I want to kill myself. And I didn't want to hide that and I didn't want to dress it all up as kind of everything's jolly and nice you know I wanted it to feel real and so we did that with with all the characters with Betsy and with with Ham with Ham we kind of wanted because he's a slightly we talked um, with Anthony Walsh about how Ham 
sounds like he might be picking a fight with you, but that's just his, the way he, he delivers his lines. <laughs> you know, <laughs> actually, he's actually very generous and gentle. For some reason, David and Steerforth take the wrong attitude towards Ham, whereas, in fact, Ham just does just the way he is. You know, things like that. And, um, and similarly, we talked about Uriah. I didn't want him to be the kind of the evil right from the start, you know, he's nasty, because that means everyone else is good. And I like the kind of the ambiguity and... You could see why Uriah might have ended up the way he was just by the, the way he'd been treated previously. So that's all part of the yeah, process. Yeah, I mean, it's probably just worth saying to people who don't know, the, the rehearsal process, which goes on for a few weeks before shooting, does involve not only all the actors, but you and Simon Blackwell, your co-author of the screenplay. So, you know, it's very much about continuing to explore the text in those things. And also working out some of the physical comedy, yes. which, of which there's a lot in this film, as you've seen. So, you know, the whole sequence with the globe and yes, the drinks cabinet. Yeah. You know, <clears> those <throat> things that had to be kind of more slapsticky and more yeah. choreographic physical comedy were worked out in rehearsal. Really. That was a sort of half a day in a rented church hall with Benedict yeah. Wong, and us trying to hide the drinks from him and him trying to get to them and just trying to think of more ways that we could pass the trolley. What? So with my producer's hat on, it's because, you know, church halls in Bloomsbury are much cheaper than having 100 crews standing around on an yeah. expensive location. So encourage the rehearsal and Absolutely, and I don't, <laughs> I don't know why it doesn't happen more in films. That tends to be films, everyone arrives for the first time on day one of the shoot, and then they work it out there. But as you say, there's 150 people standing around waiting yeah. for you to be ready. So why can't we just yeah. have those conversations two weeks previously in a, in a church hall and... and get it out of the way. It's interesting you had that time for rehearsal. Yes. I know that you, on TV projects, have sort of encouraged improvisation, which I'm guessing is more difficult to do in a Victorian dialogue mode. No, but it, the improvisation is really there to make it feel real rather than, you know, natural conversation rather than scripted. But even with that, we still do rehearsals. You know, we always... because I, And it helps the actors too. It helps them get to know not just their character, but each other's character, so that if you are seeing a scene between, for example, Mr. Dick and Betsy, so clearly they've known each other for a long time, so when we see them, we've got to feel they know each other. So Tilda Swinton and, and Hugh Laurie worked out this sort of physical behaviour they did, where you know Betsy's always keeping one eye on him and, and moving him if he's wandering over and, and clicking her fingers if he's not looking, you know, and they just work that out, so that when we see them for the first time, we kind of feel... They're very comfortable with each other. I've got a couple of questions. I wonder what the, the main challenge was of getting a cast like that together. It's huge, and they're all mm. busy mm -hmm. all the time. And also, do you feel that there's uh, a challenge these days in trying to be sustainable with when you're shooting on location? Well, the cast did have some challenges because... Uh, as you probably noticed, you know, the, the film was shot in many different places and not much of it was in London because it's very hard to shoot Victoria in London in London now. So it was a bit of a scheduling challenge, you know, a week in Bury St Edmunds and a week on the Norfolk coast and a week in Kings Lynn and so on. And Tilda had an out. I remember we had to shoot her out in the first four weeks. And it, the normal things you put up with, you know, when you're trying to do something with very in-demand and prominent actors. But the goodwill we had from everyone kind of made us able to... to and also, as, a, as an attraction, it's saying to them, I know you're very busy, but we just need you for three weeks. Yeah. And that's actually yeah. can be an incentive in a way, which is, oh, I'd love to be in the film. Oh, if we can get into three weeks, that'd be great. I'm on. 
you know, and, yeah. and they turn up and there you are. You know, plus we need you for the rehearsals. That's the other plus thing. Plus we need that's the, rehearsals. That's the, that's the rehearsals is a non-negotiable thing. Yeah, but yeah, they yeah. were all fine. They're all for it, yeah. 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 Sustainability? Sustainability, well, we, I think nearly every film production now, certainly in this country and, and in the States as well, you know, there are certain minimum standards you have to really adhere by. So, you know, there's no single-use plastic on set and we have uh, recycling protocols and uh, fuel protocols and all the rest of it now. So, you know, we all get the sustainability kind of charter mark, as John Major would have said. It is hard um, because there are a lot of there are yeah. a lot of vehicles and things on uh, the move all hard. the time. So it it's a hard, hard one to. And, and we carbon offset, and uh, <laughs> although that's not as good a thing, I, I know. But mm -hmm. you know, there is a real push towards it. And actually, some of the modern technology, like new lighting that, that's mm. around now, the HMDI mm. lighting, it's so much more energy efficient than it was back in the days. Mm. Huge big lights and. David Lean shooting Lawrence of Arabia. So we, on the whole, we use much less energy than we used to. On that future forward note, uh, and since we've got to wrap up soon, I wonder whether we might just quickly talk to people about what you're doing next, Avenue 5, uh, sci-fi comedy. Uh, okay, it's, yes, it's, well, it's done. It's, uh, it's set in space. It's, a, it's my next show for HBO, and it's set on a space cruise. Hugh Laurie is the captain, and it's 5,000 passengers on an eight-week journey around Saturn and back, and then something goes wrong, they're going to be stuck up there for years. It's not really a sci-fi, it's more a social... Laboratory. Uh, laboratory. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's an existential nightmare for 5,000 people all having to come to terms with each other and work out how they're going to live and what kind of society they're going to have and who's in charge. And, you know, if someone commits a crime, is there punishment? And who administers the punishment? And what is the law? And things like that, while still trying to get home. So it's that, with a light touch, uh, <laughs> it's, it, it's that. <laughs> On that light touch, I think we do have to wrap up, I'm afraid. But thank, thank you, you so much for joining us. Um, please join me in a huge round of applause. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank thank you. You. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this Barbican Screen Talk with Armando Iannucci and Kevin Loder. This season of Barbican Screen Talks is full of similarly insightful chats with filmmaking greats. So to support Film at the Barbican and make sure you don't miss an episode, rate and subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Acast or your usual podcast providers. Or visit barbican.org.uk. Maybe you are a guest at a particularly brilliant live screen talk that you'd like to see revisited on the podcast? If so, please come find us at Barbican Centre on social media and tell us about it. Barbican Screen Talks Archive is presented by me, Ellen E. Jones, and produced by Jane Long for Loftus Media. We'll be back next week with a discussion of the captivating New Orleans documentary, What You're Going to Do When the World's on Fire. Until then, be well and goodbye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 
luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.